Uh, please turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 16. We're going to continue our series through Matthew. Before I do that, I just want to um, take a moment and say Shannon and I were in Southern California most of last week, and we um, were with the Advanced Partner Churches down in Southern California with the other leaders of the churches on the west coast of the United States, this, the west coast of the United States. And um, just having a wonderful time of being in vision for what God is doing globally here in North America, our partnership in the gospel to see churches planted, um, our partnership of sowing into what is already happening. Um, it was a very encouraging time. And then we were blessed to worship with, go ahead, do your thing. We were uh, blessed to worship with Mercy Commons. So most of you know Nick and Karin Saltis. Oh, it was on backwards. <laughs> Oh, that's embarrassing. Huh? That's where I put it. I felt a little tight over here. <laughs> we were um, privileged to be with Mercy Commons. Most of you know Nick and Karin Saltis. They've been with us here a few times at Capital City. They lead what was Southland's Fullerton, is now um, called Mercy Commons. They are no longer part of the Southland's group of churches, um, but they just, through their own journey, which is a wonderful story, the Lord has led them to their own autonomy, still obviously very much in relationship, but uh, they opened up their pulpit to me, and um, it was fantastic and such a privilege to be down and to preach in another church and um, feel really privileged to do so. So all that rambling aside, uh, just a warm welcome from Mercy Commons, and there's so much affection from them towards us as a community here in Sacramento, um, especially with the leadership. They speak of us, pray for us on the regular, and it's humbling when there's such amount of faith that's directed towards you. Um, and and I, I just hope, and, and Nick and I are talking about more ways to practically cross-pollinate our communities at such a distance, but I would hope that you would be able not just to share in the sentiment, but actually experience just the joy of what it is to be connected to other like-minded faith communities who are seeing things the way we see it, endeavoring at the same amount of effort, striving in the gospel, counting the same costs that we are, and facing a lot of the same hurdles in their context of Fullerton, California, as we do here in Sacramento. So I didn't take a picture, but it was intentional. It's dark. They have their lights off, even through the whole time, and so all you would see is this, this black, blank space. So... Um, Anywho, I didn't take a picture, but we'll get one in the future. All right, Matthew 16, we're in it and we're going. Here we go. Um, I would say to begin, my aim is rather simple in that it's to impress upon us an urgency in our living, not so much in light of the times in which we live. We hear that quite a bit, that we should have an urgency as Christians in light of the times that we live, although yes, that's important. My goal today is more so just to have the Lord deposit within us an urgency of the manner in which we live. And this is very much consistent with what we have been going through in our study of the Gospel of Matthew thus far. We are looking at Matthew through the lens of the kingdom of God, a kingdom people, what it is to be a kingdom people. And without going back through and teaching what has almost been a year of going through Matthew, um, it's needless to say, it's been very much 
in that vein of who are we now as new creations, made new by the power of Christ Jesus, called into a kingdom whose rule and reign is one of Jesus Christ that we are to further on the earth. And so it's a sense of the urgency that we are to live today as followers and obeyers of Jesus Christ. And I want to say this morning that this is literally, and this is kind of the thrust of this morning's text, it's literally a matter of life and death. It's literally a matter of life and death. And I'll unpack that some more as we go along. And I just wanted to begin by saying that the Lord spoke to me this week regarding his church. And it was the words of John the Baptist from Matthew chapter 3 that was what he reminded me of, where John says, quoting from Isaiah chapter 40, a voice cries in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord, make straight his paths. And we taught on this, of course, as we were in Matthew chapter 3. And this is what I felt the Lord say to me, that it isn't a call for salvation in this regard, but the Lord was calling his church again to prepare the way for him, to make straight the past, to prepare space for him, to make room and to make a way in our own hearts for God to be the Lord and the King in his church. And it sounds probably a little odd if you're thinking about it for me to say that, where you're going, well, isn't he always Lord and King of his church? Yes, he is, but the problem is that his church strays, is that we wander as sheep do. And so I felt that it was, it was a prophetic voice to our own hearts to say, clear some room, make space for me once again. See, we the church, we the church, as individuals, we make up the church, but when we talk about us collectively and in a broader sense, we the church, We've allowed things to creep in from other kingdoms. In light of what we've spoken of, of this whole series through Matthew, of the kingdom of God being a unique and distinct kingdom filled by his people, we've allowed other allegiances to creep in to the kingdom of God. Like Israel, right? What did God do? Having been placed them in the promised land, what did Israel do? They wandered their hearts begin to stray. They begin to assimilate the things of the world and the, and the land of which they exi existed within and brought them back within their hearts. And the next thing you know is syncretism began to happen and the culture began to pervade, pervade the nation of Israel. And so I just felt too that the Lord was saying that this is his church in part. Now, of course, we know that you know, we desire we want the things of the Lord. We are wanting to set our hearts apart. But I just felt like it was a glimpse for us today to understand the broader picture of the church at large, that we've allowed some things to creep back in once again. And as I said in the beginning of Matthew 3, that we are those, and this was really the emphasis of Matthew 3, of the words of John the Baptist, we are those who prepare the way. We are those who've been called to make straight the paths in the hearts of those who still live in darkness. But this is what I felt like the Lord said in addition to it. How can we do such a thing when our own hearts are clouded and crowded by earthly things? How can we call others, how can we make room, call others to make room when we ourselves haven't at times made room for the Lord fully? 
See, for the Lord God, it has always been about the hearts of his people. Not just the hearts of those who do not yet believe in him, but also for those who do. He still wants our hearts today. He wants all of us, every inch of us, every corner, every nook and cranny. The Lord God wants every bit of who we are. And so it's not just his desire for those who are outside of him, but it's, it's his jealousy for we who are within his kingdom, for those whom he has called. And he isn't a selfish or controlling God. He's jealous, just as he was for Israel, his chosen people, those whom he made to be his own, that he might display his nature and his character, his power and his glory through them. So too, he's jealous for us as his church to display those very same things, his nature, his character, his glory, and his power. The Lord God is jealous for his church. And it begins here, doesn't it? It begins here in our hearts. Because when he has our hearts, he has all of who we are. Because as we've been saying from our hearts, flows our desire, flows the actions, flows our thinking. And so it begins here, and this is where the Lord wants to be the Lord today. Fully, not partially, but fully today. And in case you're worried, God doesn't claim divine right over his people. He doesn't claim eminent domain over our hearts. But what does he do? He shows us the way by going before us. In what? As a servant, humbling himself. In humility, going before us and preparing the way. Exchanging our ugly for lovely, right? Redeeming even our worst parts, but even the parts that aren't so terrible. He redeems all of who we are and secures us as his own son and daughter with his most precious and prized possession, Jesus Christ, his son. This is what God has done for us. And so the question that I want to ask before we get into the text this morning is this. Is there room? Is there room in your heart? Is there space in your heart? Or is your heart clouded and crowded with the things of this earth? So turn with me now, if you haven't already, to Matthew 16. And let's look at the text together. We're going to begin, I struggled because, man, Matthew 17, the transfiguration, it is just ripe and, and dripping and oozing with symbolism and foreshadowing, and it's a, such a beautiful text. But what I'm actually going to do today is we're going to take some strides through Matthew 16, beginning in verse 21, and through the transfiguration ending in 17, verse 13. And I'm going to try to read it quickly, but I do want to read it. Matthew 16, I'm reading from the ESV, beginning in verse 21. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed on the third day be raised. Sorry, and be killed and on the third day be raised. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him saying, far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. But he turned to Peter and he said, get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Then Jesus told his disciples, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. 
For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? For the Son of Man is going to come with his angels in the glory of his Father, and then he will repay each person according to what he has done. Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. In 17.1, And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John his brother, and he led them up a high mountain by themselves, and he was transfigured before them, and his face shone like the sun, and his clothes became white as light. And behold, there appeared to them Moses and Elijah talking with him. And Peter said to Jesus, Lord, is it good that we are here? If you wish, I, Lord, it is good that we are here. Excuse me. If you wish, I will make three tents here, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. He was still speaking when, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them and a voice from the cloud said, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. When the disciples heard this, they fell on their faces and were terrified But Jesus came and touched them, saying, Rise and have no fear. And when they lifted their eyes, they saw no one but Jesus only. And as they were coming down the mountain, Jesus commanded them, Tell no one the vision until the Son of Man is raised from the dead. And the disciples asked him, Then why do the scribes say that first Elijah must come? He answered, Elijah does come, and he will restore all things. But I tell you that Elijah has already come. And they did not recognize him, but did to him whatever they pleased. So also the Son of Man will certainly suffer at their hands. Then the disciples understood that he was speaking to them of John the Baptist. Lord, we receive your word today. Father, we pray that you would take these words and by your spirit, that you would not only make them alive to our hearts and minds, but that you would root us so deeply and firmly in the truth of what you are speaking to us today. Lord, illuminate our hearts, we pray. Make us alive to your truth, Lord. Change us and conform us, Lord, we ask for the glory of your great name and to the praise of your son, Jesus Christ. Amen. So we're holding before us this question, is there room From here forward, this is somewhat of a turning point in the ministry of Jesus Christ. His focus begins to change in his ministry. Even his parables seem to change in their emphasis from the value and the treasure that the kingdom is, which we've looked a lot at, to the cost that the kingdom requires. The imminence of the cross is now at the forefront for Jesus. And what he would soon suffer The burden of what he knew would soon be, it seems to be ever closer than before. This is what Jesus is is facing now. The reality of the cross, listen to this, the reality of the cross and his death, it grips him and in his ministry. It compels him and it propels him forward, but it also constrains him. The cross constrains Jesus in his ministry from wavering, from what the Father has planned would be his ultimate aim. This is important. His death, the cross, it compels 
and constrains Jesus Christ. But let me say this. It wasn't the, the cross that Jesus looked towards that was compelling him. It was what was on the other side of the cross. It was the resurrection. It was the glory that was promised to him that would be his through the resurrection. That is what Jesus was aiming towards. That is what he knew would be his. That is what compelled him. It was life. It wasn't death, but it was life. So what seems here to be three separate and disconnected sections of Scripture are in fact intertwined with a thread or a pattern, if you will, of this very same thing for those who would obediently follow after Jesus Christ. It's the paradox of death and life that is characterized of those who follow Jesus Christ throughout Scripture. This paradox, these seemingly things that are opposite of one another, death and life. And here we have three examples of this paradox. The first is found in the first few verses that we read, verses 21 to 23, where Jesus very plainly foretells what would soon be his suffering. But yet, what does he end it with? The statement that on the third day, life, he will be raised. And it's interesting that almost immediately, Jesus is met by Peter's rather spirited response. Far be it from you, Lord. This will never happen to you. And it's almost like in that moment, Peter has realized that that which Jesus is foretelling of his own fate is true for all of those, those who would come after him. Peter is connected somehow. Oh, my goodness. Here I have committed to following this man. He's predicting his death. Certainly, could the possibility be that I too will suffer at the same thing? We do this too, don't we? Jesus tells us something that he desires. He shows us something that might come to pass. And what do we do? Far be it from you, Lord. This wouldn't happen to you. And what are we saying? Don't let this happen to me. Far be it. We've got a little bit of Peter within us because we don't want to imagine what the consequences or the cost of what it might be. But let me say this, unlike Peter, we have a different perspective. Why? Because we live over here on this side of the cross. We've already tasted and seen a glimpse of the eternity that will one day be present here this day on earth. We've tasted of it. We've had a glimpse of what it is. We already know the future hope that waits for us through Christ Jesus, don't we? Do you? Yes, I hope you do. Because it's glorious and it's great. And it is our hope which anchors us. But coming back to just this word that the Lord spoke to me today of, is there room, prepare a way in my church again, prepare a space for me again. You've returned to previous allegiances with other kingdoms. So too, even though we have this perspective of eternity present, we still struggle and we wrestle because things creep into our hearts. And that room is squashed because of various different things. Worries, cares, desires, those things that might not be completely fixed on him, they find a way into our hearts They crowd our affections. 
They cloud our vision of Jesus Christ, don't they? I mean, it's the world that we live in. I had this picture. I was thinking about it. It's kind of silly, but this is how I function sometimes. Do you ever watch the old Looney Tunes cartoons? There was a, there was, it was Daffy, Daffy Duck, and it was the guy with the gun. It was Elmer Fudd that was always after. Anyway, it's funny because in Looney Tunes, what they would do is you'd have these two enemies to one another, and the one that was trying to get the other, what would you do? It's like they'd get him, and they would cradle, and they'd try to lull him to sleep. And here's this picture of, you know, maybe it's Elmer Fudd. I can't remember who the characters were. We'll just say it was Elmer Fudd, and he's got Daffy Duck, and he's just trying to get him to go to sleep. This is what happens with us in the world. This is what happens with the church in the world. The, ch- the world has the church, and it's just kind of cradling us a little bit. And it wants to lull us into this place of, of comfort and sleep, because then that's when it has who we are. That was probably a pretty bad analogy. I had to work rather hard at that one, but it was, you know, that's how I work, I guess, sometimes. And so what happens, and then the second example of this death life paradox is shown immediately Jesus responds to Peter's response. And in verses 24 through 28 of chapter 16, he presents this paradox again, but this time its broader truth is made more apparent. Not only will the suffering and death be for those who were following him then, his disciples, but it would be for all who would answer the call to follow Jesus throughout history. So suddenly the broader spectrum comes into play, and Jesus is saying, it's not just me that will suffer death but yet gain life, so you and also all of those who would come after me must too suffer death in order to gain life. And then he goes on and he explains this paradox in further detail that it's only in the losing of your earthly life, there's the death, right? It's only in the losing of your earthly life, the denial of your self-preservation for the sake of Christ Jesus, saying no to ourselves, saying yes to Jesus. It's only in the the denial of that which ensures that true life. Not earthly life, true life is gained. Life which transcends this earth, which transcends death, it's eternal life. So somehow in Christ, the pattern is that death, we must experience death in order to really fully attain that which is life. And how do we experience this? We'll look at it more in just a moment. And then Jesus finishes this portion by saying that truly I say to you, there's some who are standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming. The ultimate intent here of Jesus notwithstanding, there's an immediate connection between these words and what would soon be where it says just six days later. And then there's a picture. And we have the third example of this death life paradox. It's a vision where Jesus is transfigured. And that word in the Greek is the one that we've talked about so often. It's the Greek word for metamorphosis. Jesus' essence, his being is changed and he's shown to be in his future glorified state. There's a vision that Peter, James, and John see and it's Jesus in his future glorified state. Jesus was changed. See, the importance of the transfiguration in this is not the theophany of in itself, but it's the persistent reminder that the end of the story is not the rejection, it's not the death, 
It's not the suffering that Jesus would experience as the Messiah. The end of the story is the glory that would be his. Are you guys seeing this connection? For us today, the end of the story isn't the suffering or the self-denial that we must endure. The end of the story is the glory that's ours in Christ Jesus. When One day when we are made new, but here now we understand when we talk about this inter-advental period that we we're about to celebrate through the month of December. It isn't just a looking back at the birth of Jesus Christ. It's looking forward. It's straining forward. It's pressing forward in hope and anticipation of what will be. And we live in this space now where, as we know, because we studied Matthew, where the kingdom of God is here. The presence of God is here. The power of God is here. It's to be experienced. It's to be uh, uh, attained. It's to be practically known day in and day out. But yet there's something of it that requires us to make room for Jesus. How do we do that? It's in the dying. It's in the death. Daily, every day, that we might have and attain and hold Christ. I was thinking too, this is Paul. This is Paul's autobiography in Philippians chapter 3. When he says, I press on to make it my own because what? Christ Jesus has made me his own. See, for Paul, it was a foregone conclusion of what would ultimately be for him. That taking hold of something, it, for him, it's like, it's, I've already been taken hold of by Christ. My end result is already predetermined. Therefore, what do I do? I beat my body. I make it my slave. I count all things as lost. I press on. I strain forward to take hold because Christ has taken hold of me. This is how we continue in this earthly life as Christians. And that we've been brought from death into life, as in salvation. We say that often, we've been brought from death to life. It's not where the Christian life finds its greatest meaning. It isn't in that moment, but sadly for so many, it is. It's important, yes. The cross is significant, yes. We sing of the cross. We praise the Lord for the cross. We remind ourselves of the power of the cross. But that isn't the ultimate greatest aspect of the Christian life. It's everything that came after it. It's everything that is now in light of the cross itself. How often we make it just about coming to the cross in the Christian life when really what it is, it's about what lies on the other side. It isn't the personal fulfillment. It's not the self-betterment, the success in the things that we do, the ease of life, etc., etc. That's not what it is that we're coming to the cross for, that Jesus will make things better for us. But often, as we know, it's usually the opposite of that very same thing, isn't it? That there are trials, there will be suffering, there will be persecution, but, and this is a huge but, but it's the glory of what it holds. It's, it's the promised life of eternity with Christ. The present power to continue that is ours. The hope, the peace, the joy, the victory in spite of the suffering, the trials, 
etc., etc. Right? So it's not about the difficulty. It's all about the hope and the joy that is ours. Here's the point. The process of dying that we might truly live is an ongoing, present, daily reality of the Christian life. That it's prescriptive. It's not just descriptive of the Christian life. This ongoing daily death is prescriptive of our life, as in this is how it ought to be. Not just, yeah, man, I'm dying to myself today. Well, what do you mean by that? Tell me, how are you dying to yourself today? How are you dying? How are you decreasing that he might increase in you? So I want to just land with two very easy questions in light of this that we must ask ourselves to focus on two things to help us in this daily pursuit of death that we might have life in Christ Jesus. The first is this, what am I dying for? What am I dying for? Friedrich Nietzsche says, those whose life has a why can bear any how. I love that quote. Those whose life has a why can bear almost any how. What is our why? Jesus. Our why is Jesus. If he is our why, we can withstand anything. Why? Not because we've mustered up enough faith and courage. No, it's because he's promised for us the way through, the way toward, the way in, the why of this death is simple. What am I dying for? Why am I dying? It's two simple words found in verse 25 of chapter 16, where he says, for whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake. The why is that very thing. For my sake, we'll find it. These simple and small words are the very essence of the Christian life, our why is Jesus. Without this understanding of our why, we're no different than the Buddhists, than the Hindus, than all the monasteries with find, which find righteousness through asceticism or, or extreme self-denial. We're no different. If our why isn't Jesus, we're just the same as all those others who are looking to find righteousness through works. And according to Jesus, what does he say? They're losing their life only to lose their life. They're not gaining anything through that. But see, when Jesus comes into view, the why changes. It isn't about how far we can drive ourselves from this earthly life. That's that extreme self-denial perspective. As much as how bright can we shine the glory of the eternal one in this world. See, that's a change of perspective that's ever so slight. It's not just about what God is asking us to put down as much as it is what he wants us to pick up, which he's promising for us. That's discipleship. It isn't about what you're being denied. It's about what is for you and for us in Christ Jesus. And when that comes into perspective, gosh, it's so much easier to lay these things down, isn't it? I hope you guys are hearing this today. I hope I'm communicating clearly in this. Question one of the 
Catechism, the Heidelberg Catechism is what? What is the chief end of man? Some of you who are with us for a while might remember when we went through the catechism that year. The answer to the very first question of what is the chief end of man? It is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. The chief end of man is to glorify God. It is to shine him bright. It is to shine him constantly. It's to point people towards him for our lives, to point towards him for our efforts, our desires, our actions, our plans, everything, etc., etc., to point to Christ. To where we could say where Paul's admonition is what? Follow me as I follow Christ. Or as he says in Philippians, be imitators of me. Whoa, can we say that to each other? Be an imitator of me. Follow me as I follow Christ Jesus. So why am I dying? What am I dying for? It's for my sake, Jesus says. And then the second question to ask ourselves is, what am I dying to? What am I dying for? We die for him, that he might be known, that he might be shown. And what am I dying to? Even though it might seem absolutely obvious, I don't want to make assumptions this morning on such an important aspect of the Christian life. Paul gives us a very practical description of what this dying looks like in Colossians 3. Let's look at it very quickly, please. What are the things that we are called to die to? And I love this language because it's explicitly just that, beginning in verse 5 of Colossians 3, because he says this, put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. And then he rattles off this list of things that we, as the new creation, are to be dying to every single day. Put to death what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these things, the wrath of God is coming. In these you two once walked when you were living in them, but now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Why? Because he's trying to take from us? No, because he's jealous to shine through us. Do not lie to one another, verse 9, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and, put on, and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in the knowledge after the image of its creator. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. The New American Standard says, consider the members of your earthly body as dead. Make it dead is the idea here. Slay it. Render it as powerless. That's the call to death in the Christian life. Today, you guys, in your own hearts and minds, you know the areas that the Lord is calling you to render it as powerless, to slay it. Put it to death today. By the grace of God that's given to us, by the Holy Spirit of God, this is how we accomplish it. The same spirit that raised Christ Jesus of the dead from the dead indwells us today. What a profound truth that is. We were talking about it at Communitas on Tuesday. Man, if we could fully wrap our hearts and minds around that truth, that the same spirit that raised Christ Jesus from the dead lives in you and in you and in each and every one of us if we've come to faith in Christ today. And he doesn't just lay dormant within us. He's alive. 
He's active. He's empowering us to die daily to all of these things for his sake. So I would say to you today, lean in, pursue his strengthening and his empowerment to die each and every day. See, and the joy in this, ultimately, it's not, again, about what we lose. The joy in it is what we lay hold of. It's what we gain. It's what is given to us as a result of the laying down. It's the peace. Again, it's the hope. It's the joy. It's the victory. It's all of the things that are in Christ Jesus, which, our, which are ours as inheritors, as children of God. And we won't read it, but Paul continues on and he says from verses 10 on, and these are the things that are yours. These are the things that you are to put yourself on, to put on as the new man. So there's this picture of both laying down, but it isn't just the laying down, it's also the picking up. And all of these things are just the righteousness that are ours in Christ Jesus, the things that are afforded to us because he is who he is for us. Christianity is the daily death because of the glimpse of the true life that we've been given. So again, I would say to you, what are you dying to right now? What do you need to die to that you're avoiding? I pray today that the Lord give us grace to walk in such a way that we would understand that the Christian life is about dying, that he might reign through us. This is what Jesus is speaking of here. If any one of you would come after me, deny yourself, deny your earthly life, count the cost, die daily, and follow me. Simple, but so difficult. May the grace of God give us and empower us by his spirit to live like this, yeah? Stand with me, please. Father, we just glorify you now. We, we lean into the grace of God, which is ours, through your Holy Spirit. We lean in right now in these areas, Lord, where you are just so gently putting your finger on our lives, Lord. First and foremost, we recognize, Lord, that we, the desire of our hearts is to do this for your glory. That's our confession. It isn't that we might be, again, this kind of monastic, segregated culture of just always punishing ourselves that we might attain something. No, Lord God, it's for your glory. We pray, Father, for the grace to die that you might shine through us each and every day, Lord God. Speak to your church, I pray. Shine through us greatly, Lord, we ask. Glorify yourself in this body that you might glorify yourself in this city. In your name we pray, amen.